Lessons 15 to 18 of the History of London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. The History of London by Walter Besant. Lesson 15. London Bridge, Part 1. Nobody knows who built the first bridge. It was there in the fourth century, a bridge of timber provided with a fortified gate, one of the gates of the city. Who put it up and when, how long it stood, what space there was between the piers, how broad it was, we do not know. Probably it was quite a narrow bridge, consisting of beams laid across side by side, and a railing at the side. That these beams were not close together is known by the fact that so many coins have been found in the bed of the river, beneath the old bridge. Besides the bridge there were ferries across the river, especially between Dowgate and the opposite bank called St. Mary Overy's Dock, where was afterwards erected St. Mary Overy's Priory, to which belonged the church now called St. Saviour's Southwark. The docks at either end of the old ferry still remain. The bridge had many misfortunes. It is said to have been destroyed by the Danes in 1013. Perhaps for destruction we should read damage. It was, however, certainly burned down in the great fire of 1136. Another, also of wood, was built in its place, and, in the year 1176, a bridge of stone was commenced, which took thirty years to build, and remained standing till the year 1831, when the present bridge was completed and the old one pulled down. The architect of this stone bridge, destined to stand for six hundred and fifty years, was one Peter, chaplain of St. Mary Cole Church in the Old Jury. The church was destroyed in the Great Fire, and not rebuilt. Now, the building of bridges was regarded at this time as a work of piety. If we consider how a bridge helps the people, we shall agree with our forefathers. Without a bridge, those living on one side of a river can only carry on intercourse with those on the other side by means of boats. Merchants cannot carry their wares about. Farmers cannot get their produce to market. Wayfarers can only get across by ferry. Armies cannot march. If you wish to follow an army across a country where there are no bridges, you must look for fords. Roads are useless unless bridges cross the rivers. The first essential to the union of a nation is the possibility of intercommunication. Without roads and bridges, the man of Devon is a stranger and an enemy to the man of Somerset. We who have bridges over every river, who need never even ford a stream, who hardly know what a ferry means, easily forget that these bridges did not grow like the oaks and the elms, but were built after long study of the subject by men who were trained for the work, just as other men were trained and taught to build cathedrals and churches. A religious order was founded in France in the twelfth century. It was called the Order of the Pontif Brethren. Pontif is Pontifex, that is, bridge-builder. The bridge-building brothers constructed many bridges in France, 
of which several still remain. It is not certain that Peter of Colechurch was one of this brotherhood, perhaps not. When he died in 1205, before the bridge was completed, King John called over a French pontife named Isambert, who had built bridges at La Rochelle and Sainte. But the principal builders are said to have been three merchants of London, named Searle Mercer, William Almain, and Benedict Boatwright. The building of the bridge was regarded as a national work. The king, the great lords, the bishops, as well as the London citizens, gave money to hasten its completion. The list of donors was preserved on, quote, a table fair written for posterity, end quote, in the chapel on the bridge. It was unhappily destroyed in the great fire. It must not be supposed that the bridge of Peter Colechurch was like the present stately bridge of broad arches. It contained twenty arches of irregular breadth, only two or three being the same. They varied from ten feet to thirty-two feet. Some of them, therefore, were very narrow. The piers were also of different lengths. These irregularities were certainly intentional, and were based upon some observations on the rise and fall of the tide. No other great bridge had yet been constructed across a tidal river. When the bridge was built, it was thought necessary to consecrate it to some saint. The latest saint, St. Thomas Becket, was chosen as the titular saint of this bridge. A chapel, dedicated to him, was built in the centre pier of the bridge. It was, in fact, a double chapel. In the lower part, the crypt, was buried Peter of Colechurch himself. The upper part, which escaped the great fire, became, after the Reformation, a warehouse. End of Lesson 15 Lesson 16 London Bridge, Part 2 Houses were erected in course of time along the bridge on either side, like a street, but with intervals, and along the roadway in the middle were chain-posts to protect the passengers. As the bridge was only forty feet wide, the houses must have been small, but they were built out at the back overhanging the river, and the roadway itself was not intended for carts or wheeled vehicles. Remember that everything was brought to the city on pack-horse or pack-ass. The table of tolls, sanctioned by King Edward I, makes no mention of cart or wagon at all. Men on horseback and loaded horses can get along with a very narrow road. Perhaps we may allow twelve feet for the road, which gives for the houses on either side a depth of fourteen feet each. These houses were occupied chiefly by shops, most of which were, quote, haberdashers and traders in small wares, end quote. Later on there were many booksellers. Paper merchants and stationers, after the Reformation, occupied the chapel. The great painter Hans Holbein lived on the bridge, and the two marine painters Peter Monamy and Dominic Serre also lived here. The narrowness of the arches and the rush of the flowing or the ebbing tide made the shooting of the bridge a matter of great danger. The Duke of Norfolk in 1429 
was thrown into the water by the capsizing of his boat, and narrowly escaped with his life. Queen Henrietta, in 1628, was nearly wrecked in the same way, by running into the piers while shooting the bridge. Rubens the painter was thrown into the water in the same way. One of the twenty arches formed a drawbridge, which allowed vessels of larger size than barges to pass up the river, and could be used to keep back an enemy. In this way Sir Thomas Wyatt, in 1557, was kept out of London. Before this drawbridge stood a tower, on the battlements of which were placed the heads of traitors and criminals. The heads of Sir William Wallace, Jack Cade, Sir Thomas More, and many others were stuck up here. On the Southwark side was another tower. The bridge, which was the pride and boast of London, was endowed with lands for its maintenance. The rents of the houses were also collected for the same purpose. A toll was imposed on all merchandise carried across, and a brotherhood was formed called the Brothers of St. Thomas on the Bridge, whose duty it was to perform service in the chapel, and to keep the bridge in repair. Repairs were always wanting. To keep some of the force of the water off the piers, these were furnished with starlings, i.e., at first piles driven down in front of the piers, afterwards turned into projecting buttresses of stone. Then corn-mills were built in some of the openings, and in the year 1582 great waterworks were constructed at the southern end. The tower before the drawbridge was by Queen Elizabeth rebuilt and made a very splendid house, called Nonsuch House. The fire destroyed the houses on the bridge, some of which were not rebuilt and in the year 1757 all the houses were removed from the bridge. The new bridge was finished and opened in 1831. It stands 180 feet west of its predecessor. Then the old bridge was pulled down. The work of Peter Colechurch lasted from 1209 to 1831, or 622 years. The Pontif brothers, therefore, knew how to put in good and lasting work. This is the history of London Bridge. First a narrow wooden gangway of beams lying on timber piles with a fortified gate. Then a stone structure of twenty irregular arches, the bridge broad but the roadway still narrow, with houses on either side and a fortress and a chapel upon it. In those times there was always a fortress, and there was always a chapel. It must have been a pleasant place of residence, the air fresh and clear, the supply of water unlimited, one drew it up in a bucket, always something going on, the entrance of a foreign ambassador, a religious procession, a riding of the Lord Mayor, a pageant, a nobleman with his livery, a bishop or a prior with his servants a pilgrimage, a string of pack-horses out of Kent bringing fruit for the city, always something to see. Then there were the stories and traditions of the place, with the songs which the children sang about the bridge. Especially there was the story of Edward Osborne. He was the son of one Richard Osborne, a gentleman of Kent. Like many sons of poor country gentlemen, he was sent up to London, and apprenticed to Sir William Hewitt, a cloth-worker, 
who lived on London Bridge. His master had a daughter named Anne, a little girl who one day, while playing with her nurse at an open window overhanging the river, fell out into the rushing water sixty feet below. The apprentice, young Osborne, leapt into the river after her, and succeeded in saving her. When the girl was grown up, her father gave her to his ex-apprentice, Edward Osborne, to wife. Edward Osborne became Lord Mayor. His descendant is now Duke of Leeds, so that the dukedom of Leeds sprang from that gallant leap out of the window overhanging the River Thames from London Bridge. End of Lesson 16 Lesson 17 The Tower of London, Part 1 In an age when every noble's house was a castle, and when every castle was erected in order to dominate, as well as to defend, the town and the district in which it stood, the Tower of London was erected. The builder of the White Tower was William the Conqueror, who gave the city its charter, but had no intention of giving up his own sovereignty. The architect, as has been already said, was one Gundulf, Bishop of Rochester. Part of the city wall was pulled down to make room for it, and it was intended at once for the king's palace, the king's castle, and the king's prison. It was also the key of London. Who held the tower held the city. William Rufus built a wall round the tower so as to separate it entirely from the city, and to prevent the danger of a hasty rising of the people. With the same object he gave it a watergate. A hundred years later, while Richard Coeur de Lyon was on his crusade, the moat was constructed. Henry III and his son Edward I added to the outer walls and strengthened them. There is a plan of the tower made from a survey of the year 1597, and published by the Society of Antiquaries. A study of the plan should be made before visiting the place. Remark, first of all, that the fortress has three entrances only, one at the south-west angle to the city, one to the river now called Traitor's Gate, and one on the south-east angle called the Iron Gate. That it is surrounded by a broad and deep moat, which could be filled at every high tide. That from the moat rises a battlemented wall, and that within this first wall is another, flanked with protecting towers. That the city entrance is most jealously guarded by a strong gate first, then by a narrow way passing under a tower, then over a bridge. In all medieval castles the first thought was to make it impossible to carry the place by a rush. If we would restore the Tower of Queen Elizabeth to the Tower of Edward III, we must abolish all those buildings which stand on the north and east sides, with those called lieutenant's lodgings on the south. The space on the north side of the keep was the exercising ground. Stables there must have been somewhere in this great area. The men-at-arms would live in the smaller towers. If you will study this plan carefully, you will understand the general arrangement of a medieval castle. In the sixteenth century the place was no longer regarded as a fortress for the defence or the domination of the city. But the old forms were kept up, 
nobody was admitted who carried arms, the guard kept the gate, a garrison was maintained. Within there was an armoury, the beginning of the splendid collection which is now shown. There was a mint for the coining of money. There were collections of tapestry, saddles, bed furniture and robes belonging to the crown. Here were kept the crown and sceptre and insignia. Here was the royal menagerie. Here were the rooms reserved for state criminals. It was no longer the royal palace, but the sovereign sometimes occupied the tower. James I was here, for instance, in 1604. Near the outer gate, where is now the refreshment room, were kept the king's lions. Henry I began this menagerie, which was continued until the year 1834. At the entrance of the fortress is the bell tower where Queen Elizabeth was once confined. The water gate, called Traitor's Gate, is under St. Thomas's Tower. The Beecham Tower has been the prison of, among others, Queen Anne Boleyn and Lady Jane Grey. In the Great White Tower Richard II abdicated in favour of Henry IV. In the vaults are dungeons, once the prison of Guy Fawkes. In the chapel the newly made Knights of the Bath watched their armour all night long. The collection of arms contains examples of weapons and armour of every age. In the church of St. Peter ad Vincula you will find the graves of the unfortunate princes, queens, and nobles who have been executed for state offences. Nothing except the royal tombs of Westminster so much helps to prove the reality of history as this collection of graves and slabs and tablets in this little church. And here were kept the crown jewels, about which many a chapter might be written. But to study the Tower of London, one must visit it with the history of England in hand. Hither were brought all the state prisoners, here they were confined, here they were executed. Every tower, every stone, reminds one of sufferers and criminals and traitors and innocent victims. Do not, however, forget that this tower was built for the restriction of the liberties of the people. That purpose has been defeated. The liberties have grown beyond what could ever have been hoped, while the privileges of the crown, which this tower was built to protect and to enlarge, have been restricted beyond the greatest fears of the medieval kings. End of Lesson 17 Lesson 18 the Tower of London, Part Two. Of all the prisoners who suffered death at the termination of their captivity in the Tower, there is none whose fate was so cruel as that of Lady Jane Grey. Her story belongs to English history. Recall, when you next visit the Tower, the short and tragic life of this young queen of a nine days' reign. She was not yet eighteen when she was beheaded, not through any fault of her own, but solely because her relationship to the crown placed her in the hands of men who used her for their own political purposes. She was the second cousin of Edward the Sixth, Mary and Elizabeth. Her grandmother was the sister of Henry the Eighth, widow of Louis the Twelfth of France, and wife of Charles, Duke of Suffolk. 
the young king on his deathbed was persuaded to name her as his successor. She was sixteen years of age, she was already married to Lord Guilford Dudley, son of the Duke of Northumberland, when she was proclaimed queen. Nine days after the proclamation she was a prisoner. On the 8th of July she was acknowledged queen by the Lord Mayor and Aldermen. On the 10th she was taken by water from Greenwich to the Tower, and proclaimed queen in the city. On the 17th another proclamation was made of Queen Mary, and her reign was over. But the Tower she was never more to leave. On the 13th of November, after five months of suspense, she was tried for high treason, with Cranmer, her husband, Lord Guilford, and her husband's brother, Lord Ambrose. They were all four found guilty and condemned to death, their judges being the very men who had sworn allegiance to her as Queen. It would seem that Mary had no desire to carry out the sentence. Cranmer she reserved for a more cruel death than that of beheading. He was to be burned as a heretic. The other three, two boys and a girl, it would be dangerous to execute, on account of the popular sympathy their death would awaken. They were therefore sent back to the tower. Probably it was intended that Lady Jane, at least, should pass the rest of her life in honourable captivity, as happened later on to Arabella Stuart. But the rebellion of Wyatt showed that her name could still be used as a cry in favour of a Protestant succession. It was therefore resolved to put both husband and wife to death. What further harm the young Lord Guilford Dudley could do is not apparent. Even then the Queen's advisers shrank from exhibiting on Tower Hill the spectacle of a young and beautiful girl, taken forth to be beheaded, because certain hot-headed partisans had used her name. She was executed, therefore, within the verge of the tower itself, on the so-called green. The green is a place where no grass will grow, it used to be said, on account of the blood that had been shed upon it. Among the sufferers here was Hastings, executed by order of King Richard, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, and Lady Jane Grey. A stone marks the spot on which the scaffold was set up. It was on the morning of the 12th of February that Lady Jane Grey was put to death. She was then confined in the Brick Tower, the residence of the Master of the Ordnance. From her window she saw the headless body of her husband brought back from Tower Hill in a cart. She looked upon it without shrinking. "'Oh, Guilford,' she said, "'the antipast is not so bitter after thou hast tasted, and which I shall soon taste, as to make my flesh tremble. It is nothing compared to the feast of which we shall partake this day in heaven.' So she went forth with her two gentlewomen, Elizabeth Tilney and Mistress Helen, but she shed no tears. When she was on the scaffold, she spoke to the officers of the tower and the soldiers that stood around. No man or woman, however wise and dignified, could speak more clearly and with greater dignity than this girl of sixteen. They had been trying to make her a Catholic. Therefore she made confession of the Protestant faith. 
good Christian people, bear witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I do look to be saved by no other means, but only by the mercy of God, in the blood of his only Son, Jesus Christ. So she made her gentlewomen bare her neck, and bind her eyes, and kneeling down, laid her head upon the block, and while she was saying, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit, the axe fell, and she was dead. She lies buried before the altar of St. Peter's Church, near the bodies of the Queen's Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. So she died, this poor innocent child, of whom all we know is that she was so scholarly that she could read Greek in the original, that she was beautiful, of a grave and sweet disposition, and raised far above the voice of calumny. She had, says Fox, the innocency of childhood, the beauty of youth, the gravity of age. She had the birth of a princess, the learning of a clerk, the life of a saint, and the death of a malefactor for her parents' offences. End of Lesson 18 Recording by Ruth Golding